Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to be here again this morning. Thanks, Father, not because it is, in all cases, our first choice. Sometimes, Father, the flesh would drive us to do different things. But when we finally arrive, Father, and we sit in your presence and the word is open before us, and we hear something, Father, that you have prepared for that moment, it reminds us, Father, of how special time in the word can be and how easily, Father, we can see it as a burden rather than as a joy. And I pray, Father, that today our hearts would open up with the joy that comes only from knowing you through your word. May the word speak to us, Father, in a way that convicts and, if possible, Father, changes and lets us be more like you, lets us work your kingdom's work. In all these things, Father, we give you glory and honor and thanks. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Luke chapter 4. I know Daniel did a great job in my absence last week in Acts. I appreciate that again, Daniel. Thank you for that. This week we're back where I left off a couple weeks ago. The last part of chapter 4. Jesus has begun his ministry in earnest. He now is initiating that travel from city to city, which really defines his ministry from this point forward. This is the style Jesus will take with him all the way to the point where he is finally ready to make his trip to Jerusalem for the purpose of dying on the cross. That clearly changes the focus of his ministry. But until that day, he is traveling from city to city. He's going to encounter scoffers. He's going to encounter enemies. He's going to encounter demons, some of which we see today. But he's also going to encounter crowds that are enthusiastic and that are very pleased with his teaching and receive it. And in each town, he's going to do a variety of miracles and signs associated with his teaching. He's going to teach authority, uh, Scripture with an authority that they've never seen before. He's going to teach them Scripture in ways they've never heard before. And he's going to prompt questions about who is he and where did this authority come from. That's the nature of his ministry. And of course, along the way, he's going to rebuke unrighteousness. He's going to call out sin among both the believer and the unbeliever. And he's going to establish the Word of God. He's going to establish this coming kingdom. But I want you to begin to consider a few things as we go through chapter 4 today, and actually as we go forward from there, even into future chapters, you should begin to ask some questions. We take for granted, I think, the way Jesus did his ministry. Oh, of course, he came, he taught, he did all the miracles, and then he died. That's just the storyline. But you could, ask, you could arguably ask the question, why did he do it that way? Why, if his ultimate purpose in coming to earth was to die on the cross, why spend time teaching small groups of people in little towns here and there, only to have the vast majority of, him, of them reject him in the end anyway. Well, what's the real... I mean, we know why he taught the apostles, but why these other groups? And why go about healing? Well, why, what difference does it make if one person's healed? Uh, why go casting demons out? And why do it in the way he did it in these small towns, moving around? And as you'll see today and in other weeks, he often tells people not to say who he is which seems counter to the very purpose in going around and announcing the kingdom of God. So we won't get to the full answer today, but I want you to begin to think like that because it drives us to greater understanding of why God sent his son the way he did. And Luke is particularly focused on that more than the other gospel writers because that's his purpose more than the others, to deal with the man nature of Christ, the fact that God actually had to take the form of man and then come and do ministry in that form. That was a very Luke perspective. So let's go into Luke chapter 4, verse 31 is where we start today. And he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbath. They were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. In the synagogue there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Let us alone. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. 
But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing any harm. And amazement came upon them all, and they began talking with one another, saying, What is this message? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him was spreading into every locality in the surrounding district. Well, as I mentioned before, Jesus has begun his ministry in the area of the Galilee. It's a region of small towns north of the Sea of Galilee and what we today would consider the very northern reaches of the nation of Israel today. Apparently, as we've already read, he's moving freely amongst these little towns. You saw last time I talked on Luke that he was in Nazareth having come from Capernaum because he tells the people in Nazareth, uh, you know, you will surely say to me, physician, heal thyself. Why don't you do the miracles that you were doing in Capernaum? Now we see him back in Capernaum. Now, if you remember last time, I mentioned the, the difference in how Mark and Matthew look at this same event. They put the trip to Nazareth, Nazareth after this account in Capernaum. Whereas Luke talks about an earlier day in Capernaum, even while he's in Nazareth. So we, we addressed that last time, and it's likely that he was simply in these towns more than once. They're very close together. There's not a lot of them in this region. We're talking about an area that's probably in total the size of the city of San Antonio, maybe the county of Bear. So the whole area of Galilee is not that big. He can move around in these little towns quite easily. Now, Luke specifically mentions he went down to Capernaum. That requires some understanding of the geography. It, it is Two things are common in Jewish writing. You'll see it quite often in the Gospels. If you're leaving from Jerusalem to go anywhere, you're going down, no matter what the topography. And if you're going to Jerusalem, you're going up. Jerusalem is the high point, spiritually speaking, in the nation of Israel. So to or from the city is always referenced as up or down. Regardless of whether you're going north, or south, down a hill, up a hill, it's always down if you're leaving Jerusalem. But if you're not talking about Jerusalem, then the topography rules. Am I going up or am I going down? Because they walked. So in their minds, the only thing that really mattered with respect to moving from A to B was, do I have a hard walk or an easy walk? So in this case, going down to Capernaum reflects the fact that Nazareth sits at about 1,200 feet above sea level in a desert wilderness kind of terrain, And Capernaum sits right on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, which is 700 feet below sea level. So there's a 1,900-foot difference walking down to Capernaum. It would have been a relatively easy walk. Now, as he enters Capernaum, he begins to accomplish those same things that we heard him read about himself in that passage out of Isaiah. Earlier in this same chapter, remember that passage in Isaiah? He talks about that he will come and he will rescue, set free the captives and and heal the, the lame and... Uh, so on and so forth. These are the kinds of things that mark his ministry. Now he's about to actually accomplish those very things. And just like in Nazareth, he comes in and he first goes to a synagogue. And the synagogue now is his first audience. And he's teaching there on the Sabbath. And it would have not been unusual to be in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And we hear immediately that people are impressed. They're impressed by his teaching. Now I read this simple description of his teaching. And I have to admit, I... I come at it with just a little bit of jealousy. I would love, and jealous for the people who were there, I would love to have been able to hear what it was Jesus taught them that so amazed them. Because I want you to consider the difference between us today and the people in Jerusalem in that day, or in, in Judea, I should say, in that day. In Judea, a Jew would have been brought up in the Scripture from the very earliest days of their life all the way until manhood or until womanhood. They would have been taught the Scripture every week, Regularly, it would have been their main book in, the, in, the, in their town. They would have meditated on it. Most of the young men would have memorized large parts of it. So they are far more likely 
to know Scripture, at least in some sense, than the average person today would. And yet, Jesus could roll into town and teach them things that were so amazing that they thought, where have we heard this before? This is such authority, such amazing teaching. Can you imagine how insightful God would be to explain His own Word back to us? And that's essentially what they're receiving. My guess is He took them through Old Testament passages that they had probably heard many times, many times before. And He probably would have given them teaching that was completely different than what they likely heard in those same passages earlier. So he opens up with the power of the Holy Spirit, the Scriptures revealing their true meaning, and the crowds are amazed. What I find so interesting here is that whatever he seems to teach, it's different. I mean, I think if you're saying they're amazed, by definition, then it's not something they've heard before. So it's different. But yet they're not skeptical. They're not skeptical. They simply accept it. And then they are amazed by it. Certainly, therefore, he's revealing new ideas. But if the information is so new, why didn't they cling to tradition? In the face of a completely new interpretation of texts that they probably were very familiar with, why was their response acceptance and amazement, not skepticism and rejection? Because today, you're just as likely to hear the latter as you are the former in the face of somebody teaching Scripture a little differently. And in fact, that really raises an important issue I think we need to discuss before we pass on this passage. How do we know when to believe what we're taught, especially if it's a little different, or reject it? I imagine the power and the truth of Jesus' teaching was self-evident to some degree, but they might have also been predisposed in their day to accept traditional teaching over anything new. I mean, think about the Pharisees. Anytime something new was presented, they tested it against their tradition and against what had always been the way it was, not not looking at it as perhaps truth to correct an error that they held. And Jesus' teaching must have cut through that tradition. He must have cut through any of that bias and had an impact. And so it, it stands to reason that the crowds themselves, probably having been poorly taught historically, are either not paying much attention to what they've been taught in the past and have already dismissed it, or the difference between what Christ is teaching and what they've heard is so self-evidently more powerful and more accurate in Jesus' case that they're ready to adopt it. Now, we haven't seen Jesus in the flesh, but we can experience exactly the same thing as these people in Capernaum. We can be in the same situation. Before he departed the earth, Christ told his followers that they would receive the helper. You and I have that person today in the form of the Holy Spirit. Think about it. The Holy Spirit wrote the words we read through men, and then as we read them, he's in us interpreting it back. The author interprets his own work back to us as we understand the Scripture. And the presence of the Holy Spirit in all believers is the way by which the truth of the Scripture becomes plain to anyone today. Now, if we devote ourselves to the study of Scripture, if that's something we make a priority in our life, then we're going to have this same kind of aha experience that the crowd had when they sat at Jesus' feet. Because they were hearing essentially what we can hear now through the Holy Spirit, truth revealed on His page of Scripture. But it doesn't come easily, and it's not going to come if we don't devote ourselves to it. It's not as though we can put it on the shelf as a reference work, like I said last Wednesday, pull it down and then just read it on demand, and it's going to be instantly accessible and understandable. If we did have that ability, if God actually did grant us that capability, it would work counter to His greater purpose. It would encourage us not to be in the Word regularly. It would encourage us to kind of keep Him at a distance until we needed Him. By making it the case that you have to spend time in His Word if you're, if you're going to be able to understand it, 
he's put you in a place where you need to be with him on a regular basis. You have to make it a discipline or you'll be frustrated in it. That's his purpose in calling us into a relationship through his word. And he does that by making his word accessible on his pace, according to his scale. Okay. If we're going to be prepared, prepared, on the other hand, to hear remarkable things in the word, things that may not agree with conventional wisdom from time to time, then we also have to be prepared to deal with false teaching. Because discerning the difference is all important. Just as Jesus brought a fresh and, un, I would say, unfamiliar explanation to the people of his day, we may find that when we sit for instruction, either by ourselves or with a teacher, that we're going to run into teaching that challenges conventional wisdom. I've never heard that passage taught that way before. Gee, my pastor always said that when I read that passage, it meant such and such. Who are you to tell me differently? We have to be prepared to be discerning, but not so skeptical that we would reject new truth, new meaning a new understanding of what's always been written, and thereby expand our understanding of God's purpose. Now, the rules are pretty simple, and I'm going to go through them in in just a second. But if you listen carefully to the words I've just used, you should have at least immediately a danger sign come up in your mind. Steve, you're telling me that just because someone comes in and brings some new teaching, I need to be ready to accept it or I need to be ready to you know, consider that everything I've thought is wrong in the past? I mean, you understand instinctively, don't you, how much trouble you can get in if you take that kind of a perspective into Scripture. The latest new faddish teaching becomes the one I want if you're in the mindset of always looking for something new, of always wanting to hear the the special secret message that no one's ever heard before about a given text in Scripture. The claim to having new revelation is a common feature, in fact, of false teachers. False teachers rarely get much of an audience simply teaching the same old thing about an existing Scripture. So, Peter teaches in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by the act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So Peter's making the point that it's not arbitrary. It's not up to us. We don't get the right to go into Scripture and just dream up whatever we want to think it means. It has one meaning, God-inspired and God-taught. But if you're not listening for that, if you desire to come up with your own explanation, you can easily turn it to something that's false. So how do we know the difference? In Jesus' day, why were the people willing to accept his radical reinterpretation of Scripture considering how long they had heard it done differently. And today, again, if someone brings new teaching from familiar scriptures, how do we know whether to accept it or not? And there's really three tests, three simple tests I want you to consider as we apply it here. Number one, that interpretation, whatever you're hearing about some scripture, needs to be consistent with, or at least not in contradiction to, all related scripture on that same general point. So if they bring some point out of scripture... Whatever they say about it ought to be consistent with that same issue wherever it's addressed in Scripture. Because God is not changing his mind. All Scripture is from God, and since God does not contradict himself because he doesn't have one idea today and a better idea tomorrow, then whatever he said once will be the only thing he ever says for all time on that same specific point. And often in Scripture he addresses one point more than once. So if we're not talking about pulling out one isolated time when God changed his mind, and we can't be, then we should expect any interpretation to run consistent with all of what's in Scripture on that issue. What we want to guard against here, on the other hand, is something I like to refer to as Bible bingo. Somebody brings up one verse and says, verse such and such means this. And you say, well, wait a minute, that same issue is addressed elsewhere. Let me think. Oh, yeah, it's over here. Look, this verse over here says that. 
See? I offset you. Oh, yeah, but what about this one? I know this one over here says this. Oh, okay, well, I've got this one over here. In other words, we start pulling individual verses out of Scripture and throwing them at one another like darts. All we're doing then, of course, is we're taking one passage and misinterpreting it and then taking another passage and perhaps misinterpreting it as well, and it just goes from there. We really want to have a general understanding of Scripture overall so that we can understand and discern whether somebody's individual verse is being interpreted in the proper way or not. We don't want to necessarily throw little phrases at one another as if they target each other specifically. Acts 17.10 gives us essentially the pattern for how we should do this interpretation across all of Scripture. Talking about a a group in a place called Berea, Luke says this in Acts uh, 17.10, The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived they went into the synagogue of the Jews, Now these, meaning the people in Berea, the Bereans we often call them, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Luke commends them because they did receive what they heard. They were not closed-minded. But they immediately took what they heard, went back and said, all right, now let me go look at scripture and make sure that what that was just taught, what was just taught to me is accurate. Um, you know, it's not, a, it's not at all wrong to say you all should be doing the same thing for me. If you think I'm perfect, you're just, you're just going to fall with me wherever I go wrong. And obviously I'm not. So there has to be some iron sharpening iron among the families in this gathering so that when I t- say something and you go back and you look at your own book and you say, okay, I see what you say, but I think you missed something here and let me show you why. That's appropriate. Not only appropriate, that's necessary. Because eventually where I'm wrong, we all go with me if nobody's testing what I say. So that's a natural, not just natural, but a necessary part of studying the Word. I would argue that it's probably something you would do in a different setting than in the moment. In other words, it's not necessarily appropriate to say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, in the middle of the sermon and correct somebody on the spot. Uh, That is to say, if the person's generally trying to do their best and they're not way off in heretical areas, then you might let them have their topic move on and then come back later and correct them. But in any case, you try to give them the truth when you get the chance. So when we hear a scripture interpreted in a different or a novel way, we should take time to consider all the Bible has to say about that topic. Here's a classic example. I like using this example because it will show you how easily one scripture can be misused, and yet how easily the overall tenor of scripture can be used to correct it. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 for just a moment. We'll come back into Luke and finish Luke 4, but... I want to look for a moment at 1 Corinthians 15. 1 the Corinthian letters follow right after Romans. In 1 Corinthians 15, there is one verse, verse 29. I want to read that one verse to you. Now, here's an example of Bible bingo. Here is the example of someone pulling one verse out of Scripture by itself and saying what it means. And let me show you what's been done with this verse. Here's the verse. Otherwise, verse 29, Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? You may have heard that the Mormons use this one single verse as a defense for why they baptize the dead. If you don't know the uh, the the pattern or the, the procedure, I guess. In the Mormon faith, it's not a Christian faith, I'll say that plainly, 
the Mormons believe that after someone has died, a family member, a living family member, can go into one of the temples or somewhere and baptize them post-mortem. And that in doing so, they've been moved out of hell or wherever they think they are into heaven after death. Now, it's a bizarre thought, right? And they turn to this one scripture and say, well, what else could Paul be talking about? Baptizing for the dead. It must be something that was done in the early church. Now, how do we know if that's a true interpretation? Well, based on just the first rule I've given already, we look at the rest of Scripture only to find out there's no other reference in Scripture to such a practice. So we're left with just this verse. That in itself should be of concern. Anything this important should probably, arguably, would have had a considerable amount of discussion in Scripture somewhere. And more importantly, Christ himself probably would have mirrored it because that was his practice. All right, but... The fact that there's nothing else doesn't automatically eliminate the possibility. It simply means we have to now look exclusively at this one verse to understand it. The teaching must rise or fall on the interpretation of this one single verse. So, in examining this verse, we're now going to move on to the context in which it's found. The context now becomes a major decision point, or I guess I should say the next major area we want to consider. If you know anything about this chapter, the very first part, the beginning of this chapter, if you just scan it with your eyes even, you'll notice, Paul's trying to reassure this Corinthian church, this very unhealthy church, a church doing a lot of wrong things. He's trying to reassure the church that there is such a thing as resurrection from the dead. They had fallen prey to teaching that said, you're not going to be resurrected. There's no life after this life. And... Paul had to contend with that saying, you know, if that's true, we're the most pitied of all men because we put all our faith in this promise of Christ that upon our death we'll be resurrected just like he was. And yet you're sitting around telling each other there's no such thing as resurrection. So that's how he began the chapter. Jump past this verse and look at the end of the chapter. And how does he end the chapter? The second half is dealing with exactly the same issue. He uses a proof of, through an analogy, he uses the analogy of how you bury a seed in dirt like you're like burying a body in the ground. And out of this seed comes a whole new plant. And so he makes the comparison that the body we have now will be buried, but a totally new body of a completely different design will come up out of what was buried. And he uses that analogy by saying, if God has the capacity to take a seed and turn it into a giant plant just because you bury it in the ground, then that same God has the capacity to take your body after you're buried in the ground and bring a whole new body from you. That's his proof, or one of his proofs. So the whole chapter forward and back, is dealing with one issue, that there is such a thing as resurrection, that there is such a thing as coming back to life. So stuck between them is this odd verse that mentions baptism. Now, it would seem fair then at this point to understand that the chapter of Corinthians we're looking at is not a chapter about baptism. It's a chapter about resurrection. And that proves to be the key to understanding this verse. Baptism by immersion Remember, if you're from a faith tradition that baptizes by sprinkling, then you have no hope of understanding this verse because this verse depends on a knowledge that baptism is always to be by immersion. So if you understand that, you look at baptism as a picture of you dying, going buried under the ground. We use the water as a picture of that. You get buried under water, so to speak. And then coming up out of the water is a picture of the resurrected life that you now have to look forward to based on faith. Baptism is a picture of us dying with Christ and being resurrected by Him or with Him as well. And there was a phrase Paul has used already in this chapter earlier about baptism. And I want you to, we'll look here at that phrase in a minute, but I want you to understand that Paul is asking the Corinthian church at about verse 25, 26, 27, he's asking them, 
Why are they still practicing immersion baptism? Why are they still practicing this thing that is a picture of death and resurrection if they don't believe in resurrection? That's his point. He's saying, why are you still baptizing when you don't even believe that there is such a thing as resurrection? The whole picture of the purpose in baptism is to simply reflect that you expect to be resurrected. So why do that if you don't believe in resurrection? That's his point. And earlier in this same chapter, he used, look in verses 12, 13, and 21. All three of those verses, 12, 13, and 21, you're going to see him reference the resurrection of the dead. Resurrection of the dead. Resurrection of the dead. And in verse 29, he's still talking about the same event, but he shortens the phrase just to make the language a little simpler. So instead of saying, baptism for the resurrection of the dead, he shortens it to simply, baptism for the dead. Baptism for the dead. He's saying, though, read the verse that way with me. He's saying, otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the resurrection of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? If there's no such thing as being brought back to life, resurrected in other words, well, what's going to happen to those we baptized with that imagery? He's just making the point that clearly we believe in resurrection. That's one of the reasons why we have baptism. There's no discussion here about baptizing the dead. It's a phrase that's meant to reflect what baptism is a picture of. And so in the context of that chapter, Paul is simply showing that we're talking about baptism, the one you and I experience every day, not some special baptism for dead people. That's a misinterpretation of the verse. And the context of the chapter, never mind the overall picture of Scripture, makes clear that we're not talking about what the Mormons claim. The second rule then for testing new teaching is to consider if the teaching demonstrates an accurate picture of God's character and nature. Now we're looking outside the text itself and we're trying to understand what does the text actually reflect about God himself? Remember, all Scripture exists to reveal God in His glory and to draw men to Him in humility and in service and obedience. So if a teaching you hear doesn't generally support those broad purposes, then it should be, it should be seriously considered and probably rejected. Many false teachings fall quite easily when we apply this test. If you're listening to false teaching that glorifies men or credits men rather than God, if you're listening to teachings that show God to be easily manipulated or show Him to be capricious in His actions or His words, kind of just deciding on a whim what to do. If you hear teaching that diminishes your trust and obedience in God, makes you wonder about His character, makes you wonder if you can trust Him, or teaching that affirms your natural desires, tells you to get whatever you want, makes you feel good for just wanting whatever comes to mind. Teachings that do that are going against the tenor of Scripture and they're going against the character and nature of God. I don't have to go in Scripture specifically necessarily to, to refute them, although I probably could, I can simply look at them on their face and say, you're not preaching the same God I know from the Bible. And therefore, that's not going to be a fair interpretation. The last rule is you test it, you test the message by the character of the messenger. You test the message by the character of the messenger. A man himself should show the fruit of the Spirit, the one by whose authority he can come and teach in the first place. So, and this is obviously difficult for me at this point. I have to make sure I, I don't fail my own test, right? I mean, we all show fruit in our walk. We all should show the fruit of the Spirit to some degree. But it's especially true that anyone who would claim the opportunity and the right to have a role as a teacher and who have been elevated into that role, as James says, they will be held more strictly. They'll be held to a stricter standard in judgment. 
They are the ones who should more than all show the fruit of the Holy Spirit because, because to be ready to teach, to be in a position where you're comfortable in that role, where you know the Scripture well enough, where you are gifted in a way that lets you relate it, that implies all by itself some amount of walk prior to that point, some amount of development, some amount of study. In other words, if I'm even halfway ready to teach, I should have had a lot of opportunity in preparation, not just in knowledge, but in character, in conviction of sin and in repentance and in a life that supposedly reflects what I'm learning. So if somebody comes upon you day one and says, I know the Word and I can teach it, but their life looks like they became a Christian last week, it doesn't mean they aren't eventually perhaps going to be used that way, but it does suggest that what they know at this point is probably too immature to be taken seriously and shouldn't necessarily be trusted. We're not condemning the person. We're simply looking at them and saying, you're probably not in a position yet where what you say should be taken seriously. There is a growth process. And that kind of familiarity, that kind of knowledge about a person's character takes time and takes diligence. So we can't rush into that kind of a judgment. That's why people have to be given some time to show who they are. Back to Luke then. In verse 32, Jesus gives every indication of speaking with authority and his words, therefore, I would argue, are going to pass easily the first two tests. They do not run counter to Scripture overall. They, are, they fit well within the context. And secondly, they reflect God's character in the normal, natural, expected way. What, what makes them surprising then would be that what, whatever these people heard before would itself fail those tests. The, the teaching they heard before was wrong in some regard. Now they're hearing the truth for the first time. And when you hear the truth of Scripture for the first time, perhaps, and all those things line up, you know it's consistent with what you've read elsewhere. You know it reflects the God you know out of the Bible. And the person giving you that information is someone you can trust to some degree. You, you see the fruit in their life. All of those things line up. I think it's in that moment we get that instinctive, supernatural understanding that that's right. Never heard that before. Not even sure yet what it means, but I just know that's right. I've had that experience. When you have that experience, it's usually because all those things are lining up and the Holy Spirit in you is testifying to that. But I want you to begin to look at the question I posed at the beginning of the day. Is he there just to build up their knowledge? Is he there just to get a few groups of people here and there smarter? I don't believe so. I think that may be a part of it, certainly in the lives of those individuals. But more importantly, he's establishing his authority. He's beginning to establish that he is who he says he is. And just as men today have to establish that they have authority in the Holy Spirit by the power of their teaching, Christ is going to establish the work of God in him and through him, and for that matter, that he is God, by the power of his teaching. Now, I want you to notice that. The teaching is the focus, not the miracles. We often get them backwards. Yes, he will do miracles, and he will often substantiate who he is by the miracles. But one thing Christ never failed to do was teach, though he at times did, he did uh, refuse to perform miracles. The miracles were not the point. They simply were the, the punctuation on the sentence. The main message was always his teaching. For him, the teaching was his predominant ministry, and the teaching alone established who he was. The miracles were not a necessity. Of course, it's now time as we go into the rest of this chapter for Luke to record examples of how Christ passes the third test. He's already passed the first two by the authority of his teaching alone, but now he's going to pass the third test. The difference for Christ is he's itinerant. He moves around. So if he's going to establish who he is by a character and a nature that reveals fruit, he has to do it more quickly. He has to make a, an impact in days or you know, weeks at most maybe. He doesn't have a lifetime to spend with these people. And that's where the miracles come in. In verse 33, 
Luke provides his first detailed record of Christ performing a miracle that involved casting out demons. Now here's the scene. Christ enters the synagogue. He's teaching. Synagogues are small buildings. We're not talking about anything close to what we consider a large church today. It's a small gathering. And there's typically not a door or, if you will, not a, you know, it's not as formal as we have it today. People can move in and out of the building probably more freely. No air conditioning. So breezes through the building are helpful. So having windows and doors open is a necessity. You know the story of how Jesus came to a house and in Matthew's gospel and a man tried, a, a, a lame man couldn't even get into the room, so they lowered him through the roof. Well, it shows you how open these buildings can be. There, there's openings all over the place. So even in the midst of the congregation, someone like this demon-possessed person could wander in without much difficulty. They probably move fluidly in and out of the room. Luke references an unclean demon. Almost sounds redundant. Right? As opposed to a clean demon, right? What, what is an unclean demon? Well, the reference actually has something to do with Greek mythology. Remember who, audience, who the audience is for Luke. Luke is writing principally to Greeks who already had lots of stories of men who came down and mated with women, or gods rather, that came down, mated with women, had offspring. You know, this whole concept of God taking the form of man is not new to a Greek as much as it might be to you and I. Luke had to overcome that familiarity and try to make this story stand out compared to the mythology of Greeks. And so he does it everywhere he can, and here's one example where he's doing that. In the Greek mythology, there was the potential for an evil spirit to be doing good things. Think of it as the bad guy turned good. We have that in our own literature, right? The, the person who does bad, 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 like Ebenezer Scrooge, and then has a change of heart somewhere down the road and can start to do good things. Or, more in the case of the mythology, they might turn to doing something good for a time and then return to their normal nature after that. They, the mythology had all this very loose quality to it. They didn't really care too much about holding strictly to a character, and a, a character for, uh, or a pattern of behavior in a given character. So, Luke's making the point that this isn't just a demon, it's an unclean demon. Totally bad demon. As if the Greeks could be confused, I guess. This demon cries out with a loud voice. Now, when demons are in the possession of a body, they speak using the vocal cords of that person. Otherwise, their spirit, they would not have any other way to make noise, presumably, except to manipulate physical objects or to speak through vocal cords. The voice that Luke actually records, in fact, is called the voice of the demon, but it's more likely the voice of the person, in fact. And he speaks, when the, when the demon actually speaks, he uses a plural tense, which is very interesting, isn't it? Implying either there's more than one in this body, or, and I think this is actually more the case here, the demonic world acts as a unit. They operate essentially together. They talk in plural terms quite often, even when there's only one of them present. They're all working for the same person, for the same outcome. And they all are part of the same team, if you will. And that's how they voice it here. The, verse, the first word, I want you to look at verse 34 closely with me. The first word in verse 34 in the Greek is ia. The letters E and A. That word, that just that two-letter word in the Greek, is what's being translated into the first four or five words of, that ver of those verses in Luke. I go back to them here in my notes. Let us alone. That let us alone in my version is ia. And in fact, it's probably not the right interpretation. If you look at some other uh, interpretations, the NIV, I think, actually gets it right here. This is, this is one where you credit the NIV for being closer to the truth. It's really more of an exclamation. The closest literal translation is, ha! H-A. Ha! Just sort of a, an exclamation of surprise, but more of indignant surprise. You know, upset about finding out about something. 
Ha! Is kind of what the demon said. These demons are genuinely surprised that Jesus has shown up. Then the second statement, peace lusoas, peace lusoas, that two-word uh, Greek phrase is being translated in my Bible, what business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth. But peace lusoas in the Greek is, again, better translated probably by the NIV. It's simply, why this interference, or what do we have between us? Why this interference? Now, my Bible has added Jesus of Nazareth, but that's not stated. And I would argue that that correct interpretation here is actually that the demons don't know it's Jesus initially. They, they understand there is a supernatural presence here, and I believe they, real, they immediately assume another demon is horning in on their business. Ha! What's with this interference? Because they don't expect that. Then the next phrase reflects that they understand who this person is. At, at, at some point in the midst of their recognition of who this is, they begin to see what's really going on. They say, have you come to destroy us, the Holy One of God? So there's this immediate kind of, how, what is this? Oh, have you come to destroy us, the Holy One of God? And from that we can learn a few interesting details about the de de uh, demonic realm. First of all, and need I even say it, demons are real. You know, Hollywood wants us to make them, or Hollywood views them obviously as false or to some degree real, I don't know, but in every case, they don't view them in the biblical sense. We, on the other hand, I think, tend to go to the other direction and assume it's all just Hollywood and we reject it altogether. The fact is, Jesus didn't interact with a fake here. He didn't interact with an actor. And Luke didn't make this story up. Otherwise, the whole gospel should be in doubt and we shouldn't even be in this room. Demons are very real. Demons are one-third of the angels, the host of heaven, as Revelation tells us. They fell with Satan. They are his legion, his allies, his soldiers in battle. They have no one else they're aligned with. And our culture, as I said, either treats them as myth, placing too little importance on them, or we treat them as gods, placing too much importance on them. They're neither. They have real power and they can bring persecution, but they only do up to what God allows them to do. They cannot do any more than God permits them to do. The second thing we should notice is that they can and they do indwell men. They can take over the body in an extreme case and they can speak through the body. Now, they can also simply impact your emotions or thoughts. However, when I say you, we need to be more specific. They only have this influence over unbelievers. John says in his first letter, chapter 4, verse 4, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And there's only room inside of you for one. So once the Holy Spirit is in you, he is jealous. And he doesn't share that space with anybody. And the unbelieving, I mean, the believing world, therefore, is not available to the demonic realm for that kind of control. Though they may try to have an influence upon you from the outside by causing, trying to cause events around you that might make your life miserable. Their, their ability to do that is strictly limited to what God would make available to them. So, if you're ready to blame the demonic realm for some bad tragedy in your life, you may be right to some extent, but you can never divorce that from God. It is still the case that God gave permission, opportunity, for the demonic realm to do something up to a limit, just as in the story of Job. So, when you look at circumstances like this, you have to know that the person being indwelt is an unbeliever, because they're the only ones who have that kind of vulnerability. 
Personally, I would also tell you that I believe many conditions today of deranged behavior are actually the result of demonic activity in a person. And we know that the secular, unbelieving medical world is not going to accept that possibility. In fact, they're just as inclined to commit me for making the suggestion as they would anyone who has deranged behavior otherwise. They'll attribute it, of course, to psychosis. And what's interesting is they'll admit right up front, we don't know what's going on. We don't have any understanding of how these things happen. It's a mystery in the brain. But it's psychosis. It's medical. And we know if we drug it the right way, we can mask that symptom. Now, that isn't to say that all mental or emotional trauma are the result of demonic activity. I mean, you don't want to get into the pattern of there's no such thing on the one end of demonic activity and be wrong there. Or go to the other extreme and say everything that is a, you know, uh, any tragedy that occurs in the life of anybody has got to be demonic in its source. That's not true either. In between there is some, I think, extreme cases are demonic and most probably are not. Most are probably simply the result of normal, physical, emotional kinds of trauma that go on in all our bodies to some degree. The third thing to take note of is that demons are constantly waiting for Jesus to destroy them. This seems, in this particular account, they seem to think that this is going to happen right then and there. And they have no hope, they understand, of standing before Christ in the moment of judgment. When they finally realize they're dealing with the Son of God, they ask him that question, are you here to destroy us now? See, they know it's coming, they just don't know when. And they don't have much hope of surviving it, yet they're going to continue to try. I think some of the desperation and the unmatched evil of the demonic realm is really a result, a reflection in part, upon, of their desperation to avoid judgment, of just how much they know, how certain they know that judgment is coming. Final thing to note, the, the demonic realm is not omnipotent. This is the thing I think most Christians lose sight of the fastest. They didn't know that Jesus was even on the earth. They were surprised that he showed up. They didn't know if this was his appointed time to destroy them or not. They don't know the future. They don't know what's happening other than where they are in the moment. They can't know something that's not happening in front of them. They are created beings. They are not God themselves. Satan can't be all things at all times, all places at all times. He has to be in one place at one time. If he's bothering you, he's not bothering me. At least not directly. Now, if he has demons doing his bidding, but yes, the point is, he's in one place. He is not omnipotent. And you all should take heart to know that as a believer, you're protected because God has promised that he will do that. Not to the extent you'll see no suffering, but from the extent that you will not be under their hand. Understand, though, as we finish this thought, God does allow some measure of success for the demonic realm. And he may do it so that ultimately he brings himself greater glory and accomplishes greater good. But in the short term, it may not feel that way. Paul even talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, when he says this about a man who was sinning by having marital relations with his own mother. And he was a member of the church and was a believer. But it was so disruptive to the church, as you can imagine, that Paul says this in chapter 5, verse 5, I have decided to deliver such a one, meaning this man, to Satan, for the destruction of his flesh, so, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. It was specifically Paul's direction to that church to, in some sense, we don't know how, hand him over to Satan so that he will be killed. The flesh, in other words. That God may allow even up to that for greater purpose, for greater good. To this case, the good of the church. Hopefully we'll never have to take that step here. A joke. Okay, it's a joke. All right. Let's go through the end of the verses in this chapter and we'll finish. 
Then he got up and left the synagogue and entered Simon's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked him to help her. And standing over her, he rebuked the fever, and it left her, and she immediately got up and waited on them. When the sun was setting, all those who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and laying his hands on each one of them, he was healing them. Demons also were coming out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God. But rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak, because they knew him to be the Christ. When day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place, and the crowds were searching for him and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. So he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Well, we see him already casting out demons, as we just saw in that earlier example, and the people all you know, look at him in amazement and say, well, can't believe all this power he has that he can do this just by his own word. Remember, up to this time, casting out demons could have been done already. It's not unheard of. Men of God in the Old Testament days could cast out demons. God made that power available from time to time. But they always did it in the name of the greater authority, God himself generally. Because they weren't doing it. They were simply an instrument of God. But here, Jesus is doing it with no reference to a higher authority. In his own name, essentially. He simply commands them and they do it. That's what's amazing this crowd. So he's establishing his authority there. Next, he now becomes known for his healing. And in healing illnesses, he establishes his authority. He leaves the synagogue. He goes into the home of Simon. Now, Luke doesn't tell us this, but Mark and Matthew say that this is Simon Peter. This is the Apostle Peter. This is Peter's mother-in-law we're talking about here. And he's actually also going to be accompanied by the Apostles John and James. We're also told that in the other Gospels. So here's Christ, Peter, presumably Peter's with them, John and James, going into Peter's house right after the teaching in the synagogue, Kind of like we go to lunch afterward. I think that's kind of what's going on here. But Peter's mother has been, or mother-in-law has been steadily ill with a high fever. The disciples take Jesus to her and he orders the fever to leave her, which it does. And to show us how complete the healing was, we're told that she gets up and she begins to wait on them. Now, some would look at this as a bit harsh. They would kind of say, oh, well, sure, this poor woman has been only moments ago suffering from this illness and, you know, get up and get something made for us, woman. It, it, it has this sense of, where's the compassion for this poor lady? Is she just a servant? And the purpose of the statement is not to emphasize the servant role of women or anything to that degree at all. It was merely Luke's way of demonstrating the completeness and the suddenness of the healing. That this woman who's been bedridden from a fever is so perfectly healed so quickly that she can healthfully resume her activities in the home immediately. And I would imagine she was so grateful and happy that she would love the opportunity to return a favor to Jesus and, say, and, and wait on him after he's healed her. It's more the, the, the supernatural quality of it that Luke is trying to emphasize. I will also mention as we finish that in that day, the ancient world, disease was a far more common experience in life. Disease and death. Infant death, dying at a young age. People just had a much more natural understanding of it. They took it for granted because it was so common. And so, anyone who would come into town and heal you of illness in the way Jesus did would be very popular. And naturally, they want him to stick around. Today, I think somebody came in with healing, I don't know if they'd have the same impact. Partly because we look at all sorts of things as healing us. We have doctors, we have medicine, you know, hospitals, natural supplements, whatever we think works. And all of those things to us just are things on the shelf we can choose from. If a man came in and said, well, I can heal you, we look at him just as another doctor, perhaps. I guess if it was as supernaturally evident as it was for Jesus, maybe we would see it differently. But healing, in our day, if you really consider it, is just as hard to come by. The alternatives are out there,
But in terms of success, healing is just as hard to come by for many people. If Jesus had the power to heal then, then it only makes sense to say he has the power to do it now. So when he doesn't, you have to look at sickness in your own life as God-ordained. Knowing he can and knowing he knows about it, and yet doesn't heal it. There's no explanation other than it's his purpose that I not be healed. If not now, maybe not never, but whatever the case may be, we can trust in his goodness nonetheless, knowing that he will work it to good. And keep in mind, he never promised that this body would last forever. In fact, he promised exactly the opposite. This body would go away. So the fact that it may get sick and eventually succumb to that sickness and die is not God's failure. It's his fulfillment of the very promise he said we had to look forward to, the replacing of our body. And before the new, the old must go away. And that's the principle. As we go into the next chapter next week, we're going to continue to build on this thinking of why is Jesus working through his ministry in the way he's doing it? Moving around in the way he's doing it, showing miracles, but yet telling people not to say who he is. What's really behind all that he's doing? Clearly today we learned enough to know that he's at least interested in establishing his authority. First and foremost through his teaching. Secondly, by showing who he is by the fruit of the Spirit, by the miracles and the healing that he can do while with a people for a short time. Father, we thank you so much for our time in the Word again. We thank you, Lord, for the ministry that Christ gives us through the Gospels. I praise you, Father, for giving us an example not just of Christ's obedience in going out the way he did, Father, but in his patience and love for those he ministered to, that he took time to heal, Father, that he took time to preach the Word. And so often, Father, he took time with the lowest of humanity, those the world had forsaken. And Father, as we have been commanded to live our life according to the example Christ gave us, I pray we would have the same courage, though we may not have the power to heal as he did, and though you may not choose to do miracles through us, Father, I, I pray earnestly that we would remember Christ's first and most important ministry was his teaching, his proclaiming of the coming of the kingdom of God. Father, we can certainly follow in his footsteps in that regard. I pray, Father, we would have the courage to do so, not just to one another, not just to preaching to the choir, but, Father, we would have the courage to preach to those who do not know you. And in the right moment, Father, by the leading of the Holy Spirit, may we call them to make a decision. May we call them, Father, to recognize that to know and to not do with it what we should is equal to not knowing. For the word is in our mouth, Father, we must confess you, and the faith is in our heart. Father, we must believe in you. And we pray, Father, for those yet to do that, that we may have an influence in that way. For the week to come, Lord, I pray protection and a blessing on each member of our congregation here today, that you be with each one through this week. And I would ask, Father, if it be your will, that you would show them in some tangible way, some meaningful way through this week that you are there. They can know, Father, that these words are not empty, but your promise to never leave them is true. And if it be your will... We ask, Father, to be rejoined next week here so that we may continue in study, Father, under the direction of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.